Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Tuesday episode of the Fraudology Podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick, and guys, we officially made it to March 2022. I am proud of us. It's officially been two full years now since the world has changed significantly, both globally overall, as well as within the fraud industry. We've seen fraud change and morph and adapt and grow significantly. And I know a lot of us are tired, but I hope that listening to my upcoming conversation with a veteran fraud fighter will help re-energize you and remind you why we enjoy this job and just how lucky we are to get to work with so many great people within our industry within our companies as well as within our industry. So before I tell you a little bit more about this interview, I just looking at the calendar and because I'm getting so many emails and texts about it, I wanted to just let everyone know that I will be at the Merchant Risk Council event in Vegas next week. I will be speaking with Prove on Tuesday, March 8th at 4 p.m., if you are attending the event, I hope to see you there. Also, if you're attending the event, listen up for the ad on today's podcast episode because Ravlin, our current sponsor, has provided a secret passcode, so to speak, or a secret phrase to share at their booth to get a special gift just for Fraudology listeners. So listen up for that ad. It should be on this episode as well as actually every episode in the catalog as they are the current sponsor. So I thought that was a really fun way to be interactive with the podcast. A lot of times I'm just talking into a microphone uh, and I still am, but this gives you an opportunity to actually get something tangible from listening to the podcast. For those of you who are having significant FOMO and aren't able to travel yet or just it's not going to work out on your schedule to attend the MRC event this year, I will be posting a fair amount on my LinkedIn to loop you in on some of the conversations I'm having, sessions I'm attending. And I've even been, I think, kind of convinced to post some videos, which is not my preferred content but or method of content, but I will do my best for you all. So that's an option. Also, part two conversation with my guest today will be out next Tuesday, as well as a solo podcast episode on Thursday as usual. So, and I will, and if you're really still missing out on having FOMO, I will be talking about a lot of the takeaways, because I know there's going to be a lot of really great conversations that I'll be lucky to have next week. And so I'll be able to share a lot of those, obviously anonymized, but the information is very relevant, whether you know exactly who it comes from or not. And I'm lucky that you all trust me to know that I'm not making any of it up, that it does come from real people. <laughs> I don't think anyone's even assumed that, but I don't know. <laughs> it's been a long day. <laughs> so. I was really lucky to be able to have a conversation with John Mattis. He's the head of global fraud and risk operations at Etsy. 
the online marketplace for vintage and handmade items from all over the globe. And one of my personal favorite sites to shop at. I don't always shop at every website that I work with, but I know that the trust and safety team is top notch there. So it gives me extra security to shop there. That doesn't mean that I work with a lot of top-notch trust and safety teams, but I know that theirs is, is really good. And so I feel good being a customer of theirs and love a lot of the creativity and items and just a great place to shop for gifts. Prior to John's leadership role at Etsy, he was with Macy's for 30 years in roles including the Vice President of Profit Protection, Investigations, Fraud, and ORC, which stands for Organized Retail Crime, as well as the Corporate Principal for Fraud and profit protection for both Macy's and Bloomingdale's. John's on the editorial board for Loss Prevention Magazine and on the advisory boards for the NCFTA, which is the National Cyber Forensics Training Alliance, and the IAFCI, the International Association of Financial Crimes Investigators. Whew, sorry, taking a deep breath. <laughs> well, being a leader in his current organization, it's become clear to me that John is also someone who has a passion for leading the loss prevention and fraud prevention industries in a much better place than where he found it. And that's something I can definitely relate to. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this conversation. So in part one, we are going to talk about, well, mostly John is going to talk about some of the adjustments and notable difference he's observed in transitioning from working for a traditional retailer to a fast-growing two-sided marketplace. Why he believes that fraud and losses to retailers have increased so dramatically in the last two years, the benefits of post-transaction investigations, as well as some of the challenges and the goals that should happen there, that should happen when you are having post-transaction investigations or if you have a team doing that, or why you should consider it. And then challenges in working with law enforcement to prosecute bad actors stealing from in-store and online companies. This is something that comes up fairly often in conversations with merchants, especially people that are fairly new to fraud prevention. Oftentimes we're playing a game of whack-a-mole at the front end, but there are losses to our company. So what do we do with those? Do we pass them on to law enforcement? Is there a benefit there? What is the strategy there? These are all things that we got into pretty pretty well, uh, pretty thoroughly in this first part of the conversation. And then next week in part two, John's going to talk about just how expansive the impact of loss, fraud, and abuse can be on an online business. It's far beyond chargebacks. He'll share ways to present the business case of the total cost of fraud to leadership in ways that they'll understand. What John believes are the most important qualities in a fraud fighter when hiring new team members. And we wrapped up our second part of our conversation with him sharing some advice for anyone interested in staying successful in this industry. With over 30 years of experience, he's seen a lot of changes. And I think he's a great person that we can all learn from. So with that, I am going to let you listen in on my conversation with John Mattis at Etsy. Well, hi, John. Thanks so much for stopping by Fraudology today. Hi, Carissa. How are you? I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much. I'm good. And I'm really happy that you're here and that we made this work. So thanks so much for giving myself as well as listeners some of your time because I know how important it is. Well, I appreciate it very much. And I'm really happy to be here and look forward to our discussion. 
Yeah, we have a lot to discuss and we'll try to keep it to not to three hours. We'll try to keep it under an hour, but there are so many other things we could talk about. So hopefully you can come back again, but just to dive in, how did you first get introduced to the retail asset protection and fraud world? And then what do you currently oversee in your role at Etsy? Great question. I, I know that we've talked about this in the past, but like most people in the retail world, I got into this backwards, not actually planned. I went to school. Well, I went to school to play hockey. And then I realized that I had to have some decent grades in order to continue to play hockey. So I started concentrating a little bit more on my schoolwork. And my plan was that I wanted to go to law school. And so I was sort of in a pre-law type program. And one of the classes that I had was an internship in criminal justice. My internship was working as a store detective at Macy's very long time ago. And so I did that for an entire semester. And then when I was done, I realized that it was the only thing I kept doing it while I was going to school. So that when I graduated, I, I changed paths a little bit. And I realized that the only experience I had working was in the asset protection world. I sort of stuck with it. And that's sort of how that all transpired. But I could tell you that I remember my first day on the job during his internship. And obviously back then, everything wasn't on a computer the way it is today. But I remember I remember they gave me this gigantic binder. And the beginning of the binder was sort of like the hierarchy, the organizational chart of the Macy's Asset Protection Program. And I remember seeing the second job that was and it was vice president of investigations and fraud. And I said, that's the job that I want. And I worked really, really hard and did a lot of different jobs in between. And then I finally got that job and I did that job for 20 years and it was amazing. And it shaped a lot of my views on retail crime and fraud and theft to what it is today. And so that sort of led me to the second phase of my career, which is working at Etsy. So right now I'm in charge of all fraud, risk, and all of the things associated with defrauding the platform. So my area involves buyer fraud, seller collusion fraud account security and all of the account takeover type of frauds, as well as chargeback management and investigation. So it's an evolving program. I'm the first person that's in this job as Etsy has really grown exponentially. We've almost doubled in size over the last 18 months and continue to grow. You know, no other retailer has had such growth. Even when you look at it from a Wall Street perspective, it's such a short period of time. It's just been amazing. So we're growing. And as we grow, fraud grows and that's my job continues to grow. So I love it. I've always loved it and really lucky to be where I am today. Well, and I know that they're lucky to have you. I mean, even though physical loss prevention is different than online fraud. I mean, I had Gary Novello Jr. on who I'm pretty sure you know from your past life at Macy's a few weeks ago. And he was talking a lot about some of the similarities between the two. And so I really appreciated that perspective. And I know all of those things have really helped inform where you are now. And I, as you were talking about how much Etsy has grown just in the past two years, I was thinking about, and I don't think I've told you the story, but, and I will keep it quick because I'm not the one being interviewed, but in 2011, I was asked to create a chargeback 101 training for the Merchant Risk Council. And I was kind of casually known as the chargeback girl throughout MRC. And that was back when they had a chargeback committee, which I kind of joke is like the AV club in high school, but I'm proud to be a nerd. And I, at the time was doing the friendly fraud process for Expedia. And so I knew this well, and towards the 
during a break of the training, a guy, I won't say his name because he hasn't asked you to, I was about to, but I'm sure it's a name you know a little bit of. He hasn't been there in a long time, but a guy came up to me from Etsy. And at the time they were PayPal to PayPal. So there wasn't, Etsy wasn't accepting. Phonology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode. payments uh, directly. And he had a lot of questions and I said, well, I'm very confused. Like I'm a customer of Etsy. You guys don't accept payments. And he kind of gave me this look and he said, we've been here for a couple of days and nobody's asked us that <laughs> before. And I was like, I'm a user. And it turned out I actually, they were my very first consulting job, independent consulting role. And I helped create the platform for Etsy chargebacks way back in the day and creating the FAQs for buyers and sellers. And a lot has changed since then. It's not at all. I don't take any credit for all of your team's success, but it's kind of a fun part for me to see. And that was back when they didn't even have a trust and safety or a fraud team. It was somebody in IT that was just asked to, hey, we're going to do this on, why don't you go to this conference and find out what we need to know? But that was 2011 before there were very many marketplaces. So it was a really fun exercise for me to think about buyer and seller risk and how they contribute to chargebacks, as well as how to prevent them from happening in the first place. I love it. I love it. And then it's just amazing how things grow so quickly. Yeah. Uh, and with such a level of complexity to where everybody was at one time to where they are today. It's just yeah. awesome. Well, and a lot of times looking from the outside, a lot of companies will look at a marketplace model or any other newer business model and think, oh, it's easy because it, from the outside, it looks easy. But there is a lot of complexity on the inside. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. And I think where companies get into trouble is when they assume it's easy and they don't consider what the potential risks could be. So I was really impressed with the leadership at the time that this was almost a full year before they launched 
accepting payments that they were already thinking about those things ahead of time. And I have no doubt that that saved the company millions of dollars. Absolutely. Absolutely. So getting back to you, (laughs) as you mentioned, you transitioned from an omni-channel retailer to working for a digital first marketplace. And in my experience, there are a lot of differences between these two business models. Although they're both considered retail, including the type of fraud attacks they experience and overall company culture and structure, as well as chargebacks, as I just mentioned, and just all of those pieces. What are some of the most notable differences or adjustments you've had to make that might be surprising to our listeners? Great question. When you think about it, all retailers pretty much share, whether you're an online or brick and mortar or omni-channel, everyone shares the same thought process on this topic. And the retailer's job is to sell stuff for profit, profit, and they're in business of making money, not losing. So, and that's where we fall into the equation. When I say we, I mean like anti-loss, anti-fraud professionals, but we want to make money. We don't want to lose it. So that's where we fit in. And each of those are extremely different. So when you look at it, in my experience at Macy's and Bloomingdale's omni-channel retailer was extremely complex, especially when it's managed as one separate inventory of goods not an inventory for brick and mortar and not an inventory for e-commerce. When you combine them together and the brick and mortar plays off of the e-commerce becomes extremely complex and the complexity falls into place with both the theft part and the fraud part of how do you get something for nothing on omni-channel retailer. So there's lots of different forces at play, whether it's internal or external. And moving into like an e-commerce pure play, even a two-sided marketplace, like either an Etsy or an eBay, what have you. It's more about the fact that the bad guys have to operate at a much higher level of technical expertise in order to defraud the, the marketplace or the site. Whether that comes in the form of different types of evolving fraud techniques, malicious site attacks, identity theft, especially non-human attacks on the marketplace, the level of sophistication is amazing, which forces the fraud professionals like ourselves to be on their game at all times because the, the, the complexity is evolving and it's getting harder, not easy. So it's still a vulnerability, whether you're an omni-channel brick and mortar or an e-commerce pure play, but you're, there's still vulnerabilities in all three of those from a theft and fraud perspective. You are absolutely correct on that. Something that I just keep trying to wrap my head around is how retailers in store, they're primarily protecting their merchandise. It's not necessarily impacting their customers in store on a one-to-one basis anyway. There's definitely other impacts that can be had, but yet things like an armed guard, metal detectors, security tags, et cetera, are considered fine and okay and, and just normal. They've been normalized over the years. But online, we're just, there's such a focus on minimal friction. And I'm not saying that because there's in-store armed security guards or other things that we need to do the equivalent online uh, or impact all of our customers. But there is also a real customer impact, whether that's an account takeover or somebody who's never used your site, their card has been you know, compromised on your site. There's the brand impact. So I just, I don't understand that too much. And I'm not, I'm not expecting you to have an answer on that, but I'm curious if you have thought about that as you've moved your career from retail brick and mortar to digital online, just the acceptance of 
any kind, I mean, even two-factor authentication or asking for CVV code can sometimes be seen as, as friction by some other departments within the company. I don't know if you've given any thought about that. I have. I have. And when you look at it, the, the friction is that you mentioned in a, in a brick and mortar, whether it's electronics tags or guards or some places they check your receipt when you leave, the cameras that you see all around, the signage that you see all around that are anti-theft, anti-fraud, a showing identification on a return. Those have all been considered an accepted friction in the course of conducting business. But when you when you translate it over to the e-commerce side, that's not necessarily, that hasn't really shifted in that regard. It's all about how fast can I find it? How fast can I check out? And if it's in second longer, it's a problem. And although speed of transaction and speed and efficiency and search mechanisms of a site are probably the most important piece, there are some implied controls that consumers need to take personal accountability for. And that is your own identity. So whether it's using sophisticated passwords or two-factor authentication or those types of things, those are done not necessarily to protect us. Those are 100% designed to protect the consumer. And they need to know that and they need to accept that they're, we're doing these things. Retailers are doing these things so that you are protected. And once I think that starts to get more traction, you'll see more of an acceptance. You'll see more accountability on the part of the consumer to have something other than one, two, three, four is their password. They'll either, it'll either be by trial and error. One is, is that everybody in the world should operate in that their identity has already been compromised because most likely it has been. Yeah. Um, and so Doing that little extra to make sure that you feel secure and that you aren't secure are secure. I think they'll no longer be perceived as a negative friction, but a positive friction, which is going to be at the end of the day most helpful to these e-commerce sites and their overall profitability. I really appreciate that. And I kind of threw a curveball because that question wasn't the one that I put out. So thank you for that. I I think it's worth saying, I think you're absolutely right. And one reason why I think that is because we've seen that already take hold with consumers in the UK and EU and APAC and, and some other regions in Asia and with 3D Secure, as well as with their own issuing banks reaching out to them continually, oftentimes to verify that they made a specific purchase. And they can, most consumers have absolutely adopted that and it, it helps them feel safe. But I think there's a mentality in the US of it's someone else's job. Whether we're talking about this instance as a consumer and thinking about fraud protection and all that, as, as well as there's a lack of education on the consumer side, which is a whole other conversation. That's not for lack of trying on a lot of parts, but it's just a challenge to get comp or to have competition for eyeballs and, and attention and all that. When we have, when we collectively as a society has, have a thought of someone else is going to protect me. It's not, it's not up to me. So, True. You know what you, what you just said as far as the competition, like, you know, you look at the introduction of chip technology mm -hmm. a while ago and everywhere other than the United States, chip and pin is a standard operating practice yeah. that has accepted it. And for some reason that did not take hold in the U.S. And I know a lot of it had to do with competition. They did. Uh, because amongst our credit card companies. Yep. Yep. They're after a certain mark, a limited market share. So if you have a limited market share, you're not going to want to introduce anything that could potentially lose customers. 
So you erred on the side of safety and just introduced chip technology, but didn't introduce the pin. When in retrospect, that's probably one of the biggest opportunities for fraud reduction. And I do not, and, and this is only my own thought process and opinion here, American consumers are totally absorbed in the pin technology, that it would not be considered any type of friction yeah. if you, your transaction was going to be secure. So I don't really understand that other than basic supply and demand. So maybe there's an opportunity in the future. Yeah, this is something that, especially when I worked with a company that was based outside of the U.S. that asked for help. I mean, I, I work with multiple international companies, but in this specific case, they needed the most help in their U.S. market. And I started to realize that there are a couple other factors on that too. One is that internationally, most, especially if we're looking at Europe and UK, most consumers have a relationship with one bank. They might have more than one card, but it's all with one bank. Whereas in the US, the studies vary, but usually the average over 18 year old consumer has six to eight credit cards from six to eight different issuers, which creates that competition amongst the issuers. And there's a lot of things we can trace back to that, including just how much more chargebacks a company receives for the U.S. market than any other, right? There's a lot of competition on fraud liability. They consider that a competitive advantage that we see them on commercials, even though a lot of us know that, well, if that card's used online, it's, you know, not them. And there was also a concerted effort and a campaign when chip technology came out in the U.S. saying, well, this is going to stop all fraud. It was right after, it was like the year after the Target breach and the Home Depot breach and all of that. And that was coming from the banks. And I'm certainly not trying to upset any of my issuer listeners, but that's just from my perspective. But I also think that those are, I mean, we can go back and roll the tape if we needed to, right? And that was primarily coming from the card brands, not the issuers. But so that gave people an assumption that, oh, now that I have this chip on my card, There's no more fraud. What they didn't say is that it's going to make card cloning harder, not impossible, especially since we have not ruled out the mag stripe yet. And that's just for in person. And it's all going to roll. Hard about present, not included. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that should be an asterisk at the bottom. Card not present, not included. Yes. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, I... I think that those are things you know. You and I both have bonded over our sometimes constant obsession of cause and effect and looking at yes. cause of things. And I think that's why that that's exactly why I've I've observed those things is oh this is a lot of the cause of consumers not feeling taking responsibility as well as that competition for issuers to be top of wallet makes it more of an us versus them versus all of us versus the bad guys or the bad actors. So kind of going back a step, we've seen online fraud increase drastically in the past two years. I mean, obviously some online businesses and marketplaces are also increasing drastically. So some of that fraud increase is just natural with, as you put it, more sales can be more risk for fraud. But we've also just seen fraud in general increase in multiple ways. What do you think are some of the contributing factors to this? Well, that's this is where we could probably have another podcast and just talk about right. But you know, go back five years even. Retail theft and fraud used to be low risk, high reward. And it has evolved into probably the last two years to be no risk and ultra high reward. 
you know, and the no risk falls into a couple of different categories. When you look at it from a global perspective, at least in the U.S., you'll look at, you know, the fact that uh, criminal reform has a place in this, decriminalization, prison reform. Use California for a great example. They're the ones you see in the news with all of the booster groups and indoor hits and lots of hit and run type of activity so blatantly out in the obvious all stems from their Proposition 47, Proposition 57, which decriminalized low-level offenses, low-level felony offenses, turned them into misdemeanors, town infraction, infraction of town ordinance, that type of penalty. And then you look at Proposition 57, which really was a lot of prison reform, a lot of bad guys that operated in some of these lower level type crimes, maybe $5,000 or less, or no longer in prison. So you could sort of see the culmination of what could have been considered the perfect storm, so to speak, of where we are today. Then you put all of that into the fact that of, of the last two years or so of defunding the police, which has really happened in a lot of areas. So you combine, you know, criminal reform, decriminalization, pr- prison reform, defunding the police. And then on top of that, let's put COVID in place so that we are going to exponentially increase the amount of online sales. A lot of idle hands, bad guys with idle hands at home with an opportunity for fraud. It is the perfect storm. So the last two years, that's why you see 60, 70 percent increase in overall online fraud. E-commerce fraud is all due to not just COVID, but all of the contributing factors that have led up to where we are today. And there's cause and effect that are continued in this outside of just online fraud. There's so many other continuums here that impact the overall economic marketplace retail and where we stand as an overall community, the the level of impact that retail has on our employment sector. I mean, let's face it, retail as of a year ago was one in four jobs. And so that's 25% of our employment. Retail contributes about 25% to our gross domestic product. You do anything in there that's going to create opportunity for loss and that retail will be the target of it. Think about what the outliers are as far as how it affects it down the line. That's where we are today. And it's not getting better. It's getting worse. Yeah. I mean, just thinking back even several years ago, I remember talking with a U.S. Secret Service agent out of Seattle that is now in the private sector, but he was saying how they were seeing such a change in focuses of street gangs as well as other organized crime, whether it's mafia or others, going from violent offenses and even nonviolent offenses like drugs and other things to online crime, as well as at that time, card cloning, pre-chip and pin and all of that. And he said a big factor in his perspective was just the overall less criminality in years in jail, like prison sentence, if, big if, they even got caught, the sentence would be significant lower. And he used an example of two inmates are in in jail and they're asking, you know, what are you in for and how much time do you have? And in a lot of cases, there were people who had been convicted or charged with stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of things in online fraud or other financial crimes compared with somebody that was arrested for a small amount of a controlled substance. And that time in prison was so much lower. And so the word got out even before all these other things. And then you add other things to it. It just, it's a tinderbox to your point. Yeah. And the harsh reality is, is that no one's going to jail for credit card fraud nowadays. Yeah. Um, Unless it's a full-blown 
um, operation that's been for years and it gets some press and then there's an opportunity for there to be jail time. There's a lot, the fraud investigators and retail investigators know where the opportunities are and they know how far it'll go. When you have a store, brick and mortar operation, you have a physical body. You have a physical body where if you see a crime, you can make an arrest and then things happen. Although once they get arrested, they'll probably get off with a desk appearance ticket or some type of citation. The fact that there is, there is, there's friction there for the bad guy, but that's their, their occupational hazard is getting caught. Mm-hmm. So getting caught no matter what is a pain for them, but there's no lasting pain. And so now transfer that to an invisible crime, mm-hmm. which is e-commerce crime, online fraud. It's invisible. It's very difficult to nail that down to any human. You may nail it down to a geographic area or an IP address, but nailing it down to an actual human being is very, very difficult. And that's why you don't see a lot of full-blown prosecutions on the e-commerce side, unless, of course, you introduce returns where there has to be something where they go into the store. Then you have an opportunity to put two and two together and connect the dots and develop your investigation. But when you combine all of these different things, you know, the fact that retail in general has evolved, not only just going from brick and mortar to an online environment, again, just like the credit card companies in competing for market share, the same thing applies on the retail side. So when you see retailers that are all competing for the same customer and they do everything and anything that they can in order to create a frictionless shopping experience, Everything from even down to the no signature at point of sale to free returns, free shipping, loyalty programs, virtual gift cards, all of those things have been designed to create a frictionless environment for the customer so that you can get them to come to you to work or to shop. I'm sorry, to shop. So when you look at all of that, the bad guys capitalize on all of those things Mm -hmm. way before the consumer does. So that's a big piece of of the overall fraud and crime piece of it. And then just let me add one thing, and this is not something that's necessarily talked about all over, but is definitely something that is an inhibitor to retail investigators and fraud investigators. When you have an investigation, whether it's brick and mortar or online, that crosses state lines in the United States, you have a lot of opportunity for not getting that case prosecuted. The more that crosses over into state lines and states, especially that do not have any organized retail crime statutes or laws, you're going to get charged for whatever the crime was in that particular state. If you know the system and you know the fact that if you're going to cross over state lines, you know the fact that once you cross over state lines that you're going to have to get federal law enforcement involved. You know that federal law enforcement has investigative thresholds and say if it's not a million or $2 million wrapped in a bow, and sent to them with who the suspect is and presented to a U.S. attorney who is going to be able to say, yeah, let's go ahead with this investigation and arrest. It's just not going to happen. So there's, you know, the bad guys know this. So they know that when you're in an online environment, that transaction bangs all over the United States. Maybe it even goes overseas. So who's going to take accountability and be responsible for that investigation? Who's going to pursue that prosecution? It makes it much more complex and it just creates a almost a perfect type of crime. And when you look at organized retail crime, it's really one of the fastest growing phenomenons over the last decade as far as the amount of money that can be made from it, no risk, ultra high reward, 
And it's also behind a lot of the financing for a lot of criminal entities, whether it be drug cartels, terrorist funding, all types of bad guy activity, so to speak, that you don't necessarily see because, hey, it was was a credit card fraud at an ex-retailer. That doesn't seem like that big a deal. In actuality, it is a big deal. Human trafficking is probably the number one fastest growing crime. Organized retail crime is clearly number two. Wow. Well, this is an uplifting conversation, but an important one to have, 100%. And I know I I happen to know my listeners and know that they really enjoy it as well. Because you were mentioning before we recorded just how you're continually thinking about these things. And, And I am too. And I think the majority of people that listen to this are too. And sometimes it's just nice to get someone else's perspective when you're inside your head about it all the time, especially if you're the main leader in your company for fraud, you don't have a lot of people to bounce it off of on a regular basis. But I will just echo what you said towards the end there. I completely agree. Oftentimes it doesn't happen as often as it used to because So many e-commerce companies now have a fraud department, but it used to be when a company would be new to a fraud conference that I was organizing, they would often come up to me at some point and say, how do we get law enforcement to care? We've tried to call them, you know, tell them about this, this, and this, whatever. They don't care. They don't care. And I used to kind of have this, I shouldn't say speech, but just go to talking points on that. And one was the jurisdiction issue, right? Who's especially when even just as recent as less than a decade ago there, I mean, I had to teach the identity theft task force of the New York city police department. What an I, a proxy IP was because they couldn't understand why this person who stole a credit card out of New York made one purchase from on an IP from Idaho one minute and five minutes later made an IP purchase from Utah. And it's like, okay. So the jurisdiction issue, right? Is it the person, is it where the retailer is headquartered? Is it where the retailer's warehouse is? Is it where the IP address was? Is it where the consumer was? And a lot of local and state police departments don't have the resources or the ability to, or knowledge to understand all of that or be willing to take on jurisdiction. So it's an easy out. And with federal law enforcement, at least in the U.S., it's not a priority where we don't have a dedicated fraud law enforcement entity. Secret Service takes a lot of it. FBI takes some of it, but they've also got a lot of other things on their plate. And then the other thing I was going to say on that is that there's another issue that I see a lot. And that is that it's kind of a chicken and egg thing, but it's either because law enforcement doesn't care or law enforcement doesn't care because online retailers haven't invested in investigations, post-transaction investigations. We've made a calculated decision collectively. We've made an ROI decision that there just isn't enough return on investment to invest in people who are essentially doing what ORC does for retail loss prevention, where they're putting together a case and they're tying attempts and successes together and putting them in a bow on a platter and giving them to law enforcement. Uh, I do know a few former federal law enforcement that have done an amazing job at the companies they've worked at to create an investigations department that has had wild success. And I keep promising on my podcast, I need, I'm going to bring at least one of them on. And I'm really glad I just reminded myself because I'm writing it down this time. But two of them were at StubHub about 10 years ago. And they had a lot of really great headlines. They really, they worked with their PR department to say, hey, this is going to save us a lot of money. This is your ROI. We may not get people repaying us back once they're caught, but this is your ROI. And it went through all the, you know, 
bad actor chats online don't mess with StubHub because they're now doing these multi-country raids at the same time with lots of organizations. And one of the reasons they were able to be successful is because the former agent in charge of the, I think he was in San Francisco office, was on staff for StubHub and he knew how to build a relationship with law enforcement. He knew to attend the ECTF task force events regionally, and he would fly to each one when they happened to make that face-to-face contact, to take the agents out for beers, to talk about some of these big cases. And then they started going to him saying, hey, how can we help? So, I mean, that's just one or two really successful stories. I mean, there's, there's probably a handful, but that's why I say we can't, Yes, it's a problem. The jurisdiction is an issue, but there are ways to make it better. It's just you have to have the companies backing on that and it requires resources as well as a PR department that's okay and who sees the point of being able to say, hey, we're protecting our customers by putting this group of bad actors away. And then that spreads. There's there's a couple of trains of thought on this. And there is no retailer out there today that's going to arrest their way to a good loss number. Right. It's got to be, um, right. well, it's got to be government. It's got to be pain associated with committing a crime. And that's, although we could help lobby state, local, and federal government for those things, the likelihood of it happening tomorrow is unlikely. But if I say this to either whether I'm building an investigations program, and I've done this multiple times, or advice on other companies that are building an investigations program, Mm -hmm. you cannot build an investigations program thinking that you're going to conduct an investigation, and then you're going to get a prosecution and jail time, and and then you're off to the next thing. An investigation is post-loss. So you've already lost the money. So Mm -hmm. what's your return on investment on a prosecution? There's pretty much none other than the fact that you prosecuted somebody and somebody may think twice about doing it the next time. But in reality, that's just not what's out there today. So in order to run an investigations program today and put it together, you sort of have to have the thought process that your investigations department is designed about identifying vulnerabilities and neutralizing vulnerabilities. Mm -hmm. If you can take that to the next level and and identify who did it, that's great. That's an extra credit assignment, but it's not going to be your normal course of business. You need to identify where you're getting, where the loss is coming from, and then stop it. Yeah. That's your number one responsibility. Anything else that comes from that is extra credit. Identify it, fix it, and make sure it doesn't happen again. We don't always do the third part as, as retail investigators and companies more namely, but identify it and neutralize it. Those are your number one responsibilities. And then the, the other piece of it is how do you develop an, a fraud investigation? And a lot of companies still operate that they can operate in a vacuum. Hmm. And that is just not the way it can be. You need yeah. to be able to thinking that you work at X retailer and this criminal faction that is hitting you is only hitting you is a naive thought process. Yes. Able to operate in that all of retail is the target. Most likely there are many of your counterparts or competitive companies that are getting defrauded or criminalized the same way. And your ability to be able to, as a private entity, be able to solicit and share information with people that do work just like you do is really the only way in order to develop an investigation. This for a very, very long time in my prior life. And I've said, when you look at organized retail crime investigations, whether they're thousands of dollars or tens of millions of dollars, when you look at those investigations, they did not necessarily start and develop and get prosecuted just based on one retail. Right. 
I, I would say that 85% of all ORC investigations come based on some type of tidbit of information that comes from one retailer that you apply to your own information, then all of a sudden it starts to expand. When it starts to expand and you could start building up that case in value, you incorporate more retailers that were defrauded in the same way, your $10,000 case becomes $10 million case. It's not just X retailer who's prosecuting it through the U.S. Attorney's Office. Right. It's multiple retailers collaborating in order to be able to get a prosecution for the same customer. The same customer is the fraudster and bad guy that's impacting all of retail is mm-hmm. the same customer. And this is where the, there's, a, there's a different dynamic out there. And sometimes it trickles down to the asset protection and fraud departments in that we don't share information. Mm. Macy's doesn't tell Gimbal's how they are getting their customer and what sales they got coming up next. Right. It doesn't happen, you know? Right. No. Nor, um, yeah, nor should it. That, that, is, that is an old thought process for the, the people that are fighting crime and mm-hmm. loss because that bad guy is their customer and their customer is also the customer of these others. So and there's that really good at this game. You need to be able to network, collaborate and share firms out there for that, but you've got to use them for what they're for, Right. whether it's MRC or IFCI or all of the, the 50 or so workers that are out there that you can share information. There's lots of mechanisms out there to get in contact and talk and collaborate with people that do what you do. You just need to do it. 110%. Uh, that is something that I, education and collaboration are the two pieces that I really work towards. I mean, even though primary consulting business and primarily working with, you know, one-on-one merchants, I still dedicate a significant portion of my time to helping educate and collaborate within our industry, because I think it's so important. I know it is in the way that you're talking about as far as post-transaction investigations, as well as pre or pre-transaction or pre-shipping the item or delivering the item fraud prevention as well. I host a couple of biweekly calls for different verticals, one being retailers. And so often that one person will start talking about an MO that they're seeing right now. And multiple retailers will say, oh yeah, we've been seeing the same thing. We saw it a week before you did, or we saw it three days after you did, or whatever that is. And I think there's two different types of collaboration. There's information sharing as, and then there's data collaboration and both of those are are two different beasts. And especially with you know data privacy, there's there are ways to work within that, but that can be harder. But the information sharing at the very least needs to happen on a regular basis. And I will always offer, I mean, I have to keep it within limits, but I will always try to be a conduit for that because I am lucky to know so many people and know, and I've seen it. I could tell a million stories about how magical or just how one person was able to see something that other people, or once they were able to put the pieces together, there was a bigger picture than just each individual puzzle piece that the retailer saw. One other thing I wanted to say, and I really appreciated you making a point on The fact that investigations can't just have the investigations teams can't just have the end goal of prosecutions only, that there really is that extra step that prosecution is extra credit, but it's not necessarily within your control. Uh, There are things that you can do to make it a little bit to, to might be able to increase your chances. But that the real value of an investigations team is to look back with hindsight and identify what did we miss. That's 
also what I think a real benefit of uh, chargebacks is as well. It's a feedback loop, but not every loss to a company results in a chargeback. And lastly, for anyone that is considering looking at prosecutions, I think it's important to know, and I don't know if this is true in the in-person retail and, and please correct me if I, if it isn't, or if it is, but at least online, you can, when we're talking about that dollar threshold, you can attempts count just as much as successes, right? So if, if one person used 50 different credit cards and 49 of them declined, it's for the same amount, then it's actually 50 X the total that they got away with because they attempted it 50 times. And so that can help increase the threshold. But again, to your point, it's not, it's not like if every single retailer started investigating cases and handing them off to the law federal law enforcement, that all of a sudden they turn into all turn into prosecutions. There's not bandwidth and and there's a lot of other issues. So, but I do, you know, know that you've been involved in the NCFTA, and that's another great organization for collaboration as as well as some investigations with federal law enforcement. I got to speak there several years ago. I wish it wasn't in the winter because Pittsburgh's very cold in the winter, but it was a great experience to be able to learn from multiple law enforcement. That was actually when I very first learned about ransomware. This was back in like 2012 or 2013. And I got to teach or share with them perspective from online merchants as well. So I, I there's just so much value there. Not surprised that we're aligned. Well, it, it, it this, there's a couple of things along with what you just said. I have found that through my career that law enforcement is frustrated. They want to be able to help. Right. They want to be able to do what they can do, but their hands are tied as far as how far they can go with the resources and the velocity of, of negative instances that they have coming at them every single day. You're not going to get the cooperation that you want because there's just not available. They don't have the bandwidth in order to do it. And in order to conduct an investigation, especially when it comes to an e-commerce or any type of financial fraud, the building of the case is reliant on the company investigator. They have access to the proprietary data that in order for law enforcement to be able to do the investigation for them, which will never happen, by the way, in order for them to do it, they'd have to subpoena the information and they'd have to understand what only you know. So that's just another thing that's not going to happen. And so now you compare it to, you talk, we talked about the difference between a store investigation and an on online investigation. And you say to yourself, well, the online investigation is faceless. You have, it's easier at the store level. And it's just a matter of how you look at it, because when you really look at it for what it is, it's all about information and what you have before something takes place, before a loss happens. And so take a look at the data points that you have on a bad guy's coming into the store, very, very little, if any. But then you look at just a regular transaction and you look at the data points that are associated with just a singular transaction. There's literally over 200 data points that you could use for investigative purposes that your ability to utilize and capitalize on each of those data points and then compare them to other data points on other types of transactions is really the unique difference between a online fraud investigation and a store and a brick and mortar investigation where it's much more physical, it's much more observant, physical actions. In an online environment, it's, it's using the hundreds of data points that are available to you and how well you can get it. And then probably the most important and also the most complex is how do you utilize all of the data that you have at your disposal? 
because it could be absolutely overwhelming. So if you don't have a good way to harness that data and use it for you versus against you, it's probably one of the number one things when you're formulating an investigation department, other than knowing you're not going to catch bad guys and put them in jail, is how do you utilize the information in a simple way that's user-friendly, that works for you versus against you? Absolutely. And that is one thing that the card brands have noted about the liability shift for card not present transactions is that that there are so many more data points. Now, granted, how you're using them, how you are collecting them, how you're storing them is very important and not uniform across every online company. But those are opportunities for organizations to be able to use those identifiers. And I don't think there's another industry, no, granted, this is the only one I know so well, but where the phrase that my grandmother used to say, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure could not be more true. And I know that's essentially what you're saying, right? Is that using those data points and then looking at, well, what, and sometimes they're They're ones that you wouldn't think of at face value, but in combination with other data points can have a lot of impact and a lot of insight into what a traditional good user in quotation marks is going to do and behave and use your site and what information they're going to put in and all of that with what a potential bad actor would do. And and that is really in essence, a lot of what we focus on in our jobs. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.